Hello, I'm Hannah McInnes, and I had the pleasure of attending the Closters Forum in June to interview some of its participants for a podcast series to discuss the complex issue of plastic pollution. The Closters Forum brings together thought leaders and decision makers in the Swiss Alps to inspire discussions and cultivate collaborations in order to tackle some of the world's most pressing environmental challenges. I'm Britta Denise Hardesty. I'm a research scientist for CSIRO's Oceans and Atmosphere, and I've been working on plastic pollution for more than the last decade. To tell you what we do or the approach that we take is we really take a risk-based approach to this issue or to this topic, and really what we do is we look at four main components. We look at sources and drivers, so why does debris get out into the environment? You know, what are, what's causing that? So it's not just where does it happen, but why is it happening there? So what is the role of socioeconomics, of roads, of infrastructure, of networks, of human population? And then how does that debris, that waste, that litter, that trash move through the environment? So does it really move by people dropping litter? Is it moved along road networks? Is it moved by wind, by water, those sorts of things? Which is the worst culprit? Well, so I'm a scientist, so I won't tell you what's the best or the worst, but I can tell you that humans dropping things has a stronger effect than does wind or water, and that water movement of plastic debris or trash is much more substantial than that we find by wind in general, on land. And of course, when you're looking in oceanic plastic, you're talking about something else, because there things are moved through wind and waves and currents and that sort of thing. Now, the other area that we work on is what are the impacts of that debris, of that litter? So that can be on wildlife, on seabirds, on turtles, on marine mammals and it can be on humans and communities and economics and you know aesthetics and then the final area that our work really focuses on is on policy effectiveness so that really means you know what are those policies that are effective and why are they effective and how in turn does that reduce the amount of leakage or debris lost to the environment and how does that again affect all those other things the sources the distribution the movement the impacts the policies because it really is a feedback loop you can't just look at one particular small component of the problem if you want to help resolve a holistic issue or an issue in a holistic manner is it the sense though that the humans are creating the problem and the wildlife and the environment is doing the suffering? Or how are humans suffering in the cycle? Well, so humans are impacted by a number of ways as well. So one of the things that happens right now is uh, derelict fishing gear or ghost nets, as they are called, are, so we end up with ghost nets in the environment and those nets are fishing and they're continuing to fish even when they're not being operated by fishers. And those lost nets, for example, they're going to be capturing fish in addition to turtles and sea lions and dolphins and whales and seabirds and everything else. So there's that unintended consequence. But the other unintended consequence of that ghost fishing is that we are having economic costs and, and damage to our food security. So we're not feeding people who need food from the sea through basically inadvertently or discriminately, indiscriminately killing fish and other marine wildlife that are being caught in these derelict nets. So that's one way that humans are affected by the debris that ends up in the ocean. Another way that humans can be affected by debris is economically. People will spend more time and pay more money to go further to a clean beach, right? So who wants to go to a dirty beach? Who wants to go where you see syringes and, you know, a half meter or hip high 
plastic debris on our beaches. So people will spend their money and go elsewhere. And so that has economic consequences and tourism costs to local communities and environments. Other ways that humans are affected by our plastic waste is if we're burning in open burns and areas, plastics have components in them that are carcinogenic. And so if we're burning open plastics, we can be resulting in you know, human harm or potential increase in cancers and other you know, diseases or things associated with the harm that is resulting from that. So there are numbers of ways that humans are affected from aesthetics to cosmetic to um, food nutrition around the world. And you're advising governments around the world, is that right? Well, I provide information that hopefully can be used by governments and you know, multinationals as well to, to make decisions that are going to hopefully be constructive in the environment. Are they receptive? Are they getting more receptive in the decade that you've been working well, in the industry? Oh, sure, the conversation has really, really shifted and there's a huge growth in public interest and awareness of this. You know, we're starting to see that response from governments, some of what's being driven by the public and some of what's just being driven by governments themselves. So we're seeing microbead bans and governments uh, making changes in legislation around, sometimes around particular items, sometimes around suites of items and sometimes around infrastructure and those sorts of things as well. And part of the work that we do tries to evaluate what policies are effective and are likely to be, you know, result in some of the outcomes that we want, which is cleaner roads, cleaner lands, cleaner rivers, cleaner seas. Is it the case, though, that some governments are really not pulling their weight and that brings everyone back down? Well, I think what you're really getting at is the transboundary nature of this issue, right? So the plastic or the debris that's littered in one area doesn't just stay right there. Now, yes, we do know that much or most of the plastic is local in origin. However, we also have a substantial inequity such that some governments are shipping their plastic or their trash or their waste to other to other parts of the world, for one thing. you know, And we're also seeing that governments in some areas may be more or less receptive to implementing policies. We're also seeing countries like Kenya, for example, that's implemented a plastic bag ban, and then they're following through with it so that there are fines being implemented if people are using or carrying around single-use plastic bags. And what you've seen in that country, in Nairobi, when I was there, you've seen a tremendous shift. You don't find plastic bag waste on the ground. You, you can't just have the legislation, though. You actually must follow through on it. So if you have a ban, but you don't regulate that, and you don't really follow through with it, then you're not going to see a change, right? So it's one thing to set it up. It's another thing to really follow it through. And we're seeing big changes in many countries around the world and also promises of future changes to come. So plastic bag bans are an obvious one, but what other things are you advising governments and therefore individuals to do? So what I do is I tell you what the science shows and then what's done with that is the next step. So for example, we did analysis, you know, which might sound really common sense to people, to actually analyze the data to say, are incentives effective? So is providing cash for containers really that useful? Well, yes, is the simple answer to that. We find fewer beverage containers littered on the ground in places where you get cash for those containers. And when we think about that in many places of the world, we, we observe that, you know, and that's people collect aluminium cans, for example, because aluminium has a residual value. People 
pick out the copper out of wires because it has a value. Now that some places in some states, in some countries where we actually have incentives or cash for containers, we see far fewer of those containers, those beverage containers littered on the ground. So, you know, it seems quite simple and some of these are really simple solutions and some people might say, well, they don't really work that well. Um, to those people, I would say, well, the data that we've analyzed from the United States, from Australia, shows that we find you know, up to 40% or more fewer beverage containers on the ground in states within those countries where we have you know, container deposit legislation. So incentives do work, and we know that actually quite small incentives work. So fishers in some countries in South Korea for a while, there was a buyback program where fishers, instead of littering their discarded nets at sea, they would bring those back into port. And when they brought those back into port, they received cash for those, you know, when they were disused or, you know, not able to be fished with anymore because of holes in them and, you know, because they were starting to break down through wear. You know, we know over and over again that incentives can be quite effective in changing people's behavior. Just to finish off, I think we've got about just under a minute. You've been working, as you said, for a decade. Do you feel optimistic? What's your hope for the next year, let's say? So I do feel optimistic. I am an eternal optimist and a cup is half full sort of person. I think we're going to continue to see change. I think that yes, we'll also have people say that the change is not happening fast enough. I think we need and hopefully will continue to use science to help inform the decisions that give us the best benefits for individuals, for communities, for states, for countries, and for a better global environment and for an improved global economy. We need to be looking at those things hand in hand. And when we actually put a price on plastic, that's when we're going to see the game really change. Thank you very, very much. Pleasure.